What are you doing? Get up! You can't sit there! Get up! Why not? It's a chair. No, it, that is not a chair. That is... That is... That is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. chair is the seat on which every king it's held and queen... by a large rock. That is the stone of Schoon. You are, are trivializing oh, everything. You trivialize... I don't care how many royal stones of Saturn's Listen to chair. me! Listen to me! Listen to you? By what right? By divine right, if you must. I am your king. No, you're not. You told me so yourself. You said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening? Because to you? I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Separating us. Anyone who wants to come closer, that would be great. There's some um, faces in the back that are being obscured. Nobody ever moves any faces. Oh, wow. <laughs> I want to f- suggest that I'm approachable. <laughs> and I'm actually going to, and since we're, we're not a huge crowd, I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to enlist participation. So you actually might want to come closer so that you can be involved. And the idea here, unlike going to the movie theater where you hide in the dark and you don't talk to anyone, it's not considered polite. Here, the idea is, is for us to experience this, that the communal outing of going to the movies, but in an interrupted, a consciously interrupted way, where we take the time to do a close analysis of what, what we're looking at so that um, the film is not just recreation, that it's washing over us unthinkingly, but that we allow its meaning to be recreated for ourselves through shared study. It, um, theater once occupied this role for people culturally. It was a way for people to go through a, an experience and have a joint catharsis. It used to be, once upon a time, in, in the mov- uh, standard movie-going experience, people would come together in uh, movie theaters nowadays. You don't necessarily have to watch a movie with, a, with other people. Most of the time, people are actually experiencing film on their own, on demand, in their own atomized way. And so in order to, for us to actually have shared narratives, Judaism is a culture of shared narratives, um, we, we need to take the time to, to look at things closely. So the, this whole way of learning is the outgrowth of a course that I gave, that I've been giving at Hebrew Union College for a number of years. It began um, as a collaboration between me and an elder colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Eugene Borowitz, who is the preeminent um, theologian of the reform movement. And Dr. Borowitz, two weeks after I arrived at HUC as a beginning professor, approached me and asked me to teach a class with him. And he felt that what we needed was a way for rabbis and uh, cantors and educators to reach Jews in the pews, to use the language that, and the experiences that people were already having, 
and the cultural ex experiences that they were having and find a way to bring that back into a Jewish conversation. And so we evolved a method or an orientation to film watching, uh, which we called inverted midrash. Inverted midrash. So what does that mean? Uh, in uh, a good deal of rabbinic midrash, there is a standard, um, let's say it's like a generic tick that the rabbis had that they would bring an exegesis of a difficult verse. They'd want to interpret something that they found difficult, and they'd bring an interpretation, and then they'd bring maybe another interpretation. They like to always bring a few and disagree. And in addition to all of that, if they felt that these glosses, you know, or um, definitions of words weren't doing the trick, they'd say, a parable to what can it be likened? And they'd take that textual difficulty and apply it to a folktale. There's a story about a king who had a daughter who he showered with love, but one day that daughter disappointed him and he exiled her to a foreign land, etc., etc. The rabbis felt that often it was not just enough to keep their message in the Jewish text, but they had to use the language of people, of everyday life and of culture at large so as to finish their, their message. And so we do this in reverse, a kind of learning in reverse, where we start with the mashal, we start with the folktale or the parable that the culture at large is familiar with. And then we use that as an occasion to come back to talk about what Judaism has to say about that particular critical cultural theme. Okay, so tonight's effort will be around the whole question of what it is to speak God's word. What it is to be um, a leader, a prophet, that is enjoined to speak God's word for the people. And so this, we're going to be using the, the king's speech as an opportunity to then talk about Moses and his particular um, curious ways of speaking and how that served his, ultimately his leadership and this specific job of speaking God's word. Okay, so we're going to begin. Um, we've, I think they're giving us basically uh, another 50 minutes to get this job done. Um, so I, I, I'm always happy if you give me a little bit more time. It depends on how you're feeling. Um, so our job first will be to look at a few clips from a King's speech. How many of you have actually seen the film? Great. That's what happens when it's a great film and it wins the Academy Award. So, um, and maybe some of you went and saw it in, in advance of this, of this evening as well. So we're going to look at a few clips that will allow us to take the thing apart. Another thing that the rabbis do in rabbinic midrash is they don't attempt to offer a homily that tells you all about the entire Bible. They often attend to small points and individual verses and offer a running commentary that in a way is a taking apart of the, of the Torah or taking apart of the prophets as, so that you can come back to the text having looked closely at it. So we're going to take the, the movie apart by looking at some representative clips that will speak to this issue. I'm going to be asking you to pay attention to certain things that I'm sure you didn't look at. Uh, I was asked by um, Shmuley before I came here, so um, can, the clips that you're going to show, are they on YouTube? And only one of them is on YouTube because it happens to be, in this case, I have a slightly idiosyncratic take on this film. And we're going to look at, look at those uh, clips and then move to the handout that I hope you all have, which will explore um, specific issues relating to Moses. Okay, so this is the beginning. 
So this is the very beginning of the film. Most of us speed through this part. Okay, and what do we find out here? The, the film begins in 1925 when King George reigns over a quarter of the world's people. Why do we need to know that? It's like a lot of pressure that is going to be invested in this, in this next part, which is that he asks his second son, the Duke of York, to give the closing speech at the Empire, Ex Empire Exhibition in Wembley, London. Okay, now we're also aware that this is the, the zenith of the British Empire, right? This is taking us back to a time that we may not remember. Okay, it's the microphone, but why is it um, being filmed in this particular, in this, what does the microphone kind of look like for you? Right. It looks like a torpedo. It looks like a ballistic missile. And why is that important? Okay, because this is intimating that we're about, this is ultimately going to be a war narrative and that one's voice and one's words are a weapon against tyranny. And, that, and, and, and how does the leader get himself out from under the tyranny of his own speech impediment to, so that he can actually take up the voice against tyranny? And you'll see in this, in this sequence how um, the microphone is photographed at various angles and repeated. What about the, the, the music? What is the feeling that you have from this music? Peaceful. Right, it sounds peaceful. This room, right, this room where this, we're right now seeing the room where the BBC uh, announcer is going to be um, making his um, preliminary announcements before the, the Duke gives his speech. And so right now we're in this lilting kind of warm place. And uh, this whole scene, the sequence is um, set up to be a series of contrasts. The inside of this room and what's outside of this room. What happens when you're confident with your voice? When this microphone is something that you can approach? Um, you know, it's just a benign circle. And what happens when it's a, a very threatening missile? Who's that? Okay, that's the Duke. And what, look at the colors in the next few seconds and look at how he's filmed, as opposed to what you've seen up until now. What do you notice? Okay. So you, you see his mouth, and, it, and it, it, it's not, um, there's no voice coming out. It's gray. It's outside, so somebody's outside of that warm precinct. What is the sign above his head? Like, if only. <laughs> if only I had a way out of this situation. Now you have all these people around him who are there purportedly to make it easier on him, offering him encouragements, which of course makes everything worse. Whenever you see the archbishop, you know you have to be worried. Okay, now here comes the BBC announcer and he has practiced in this whole experience. What is he doing? Okay, now what actually is gargling? 
Okay, so it, if, in a way, it's a kind of stutter, is it not? It's a, it's a repeated noise, which in a certain context would be, see, would be seen as ineffective, but here, if you can harness your voice properly or you know how to use these techniques of repetition, they, they abet your speaking as opposed to limiting it. And of course, all the ceremony, he's got his ablutions, he's got his spittoon, silver. Okay, so I'll just say this, that the ceremonial aspect of this, the, the genteel... The genteel aspect of this is very important because this film is communicating two messages, I will argue. Number one, it's about the continuity of a tradition through its disruption or how despite disruption, there is continuity in the tradition. And so protocol and etiquette and um, all of this, the ceremonial aspects are important and yet at certain crucial junctures, they need to be abrogated in order for this duke to be able to come and um, assume his role, right? That, that whole, the whole scenario is a disruption of the tradition. In some respects, there's a very reform message to all of this. How tradition is, is, is continued through a certain creative reconstruction or a, a creative departure from the tradition. The, so one of the messages is about the continuity of, the, of tradition through disruption, and the other is about the curious power of a stutterer's voice, and why, um, what is it about what special power and value comes to words when uttered by someone for whom words are so heavy and labored. Yeah, he's really believing it. <laughs> Just so the Archbishop, it's so cold out there that you see you see the breath of the archbishop. The archbishop is coldness. <laughs> Unfortunately, in this case, it's religion in a, in a very cold, harsh form. Okay, do you see here specifically? So a repetition of consonants as a vocal tool. program and Empire Service, taking you to Wembley Stadium for the closing ceremony of the Empire Exhibition, where His Royal Highness the Duke of York will read a message from his father, His Majesty King George V. Fifty-eight British colonies and dominions have taken part, making this the largest exhibition staged anywhere in the world. Remember, sir, three flashes, then steady red means your life. Using the new invention of radio, the opening ceremony was the first time His Majesty the King... So you'll note in this opening scene, there, um, the camera often is distorting the, the Duke, sort of stretching him in ways that, um, that suggest his discomfort in the, in the position that he's in. ...addressed his subjects on the wires. At the close of the first season, the heir to the throne, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, made his first broadcast. And today, his younger brother, His Royal Highness the Duke of York, 
Okay, if he isn't nervous enough, right? Dread. See what I mean about the distorted angles? Okay, what do you notice behind him? Why the number two? Yeah, he's the second in line. Right, so how dare he, I mean, second fiddle, and, and that will have to be the thing that he has to get over. His secondariness is what makes him, you know, is the first reason why he's not fit to rule, not to mention the fact that he has this speech problem. Did you want to say something? I think, I think it's amazing that you're sharing, this is incredible, I mean, I've never, I never would have picked that out and thought about it. And so, thank you. <laughs> so this is the point that we need to take, even film, because it has this appearance of reality, that, that a seamlessness, in, and, and uh, the mimetic capacity, the imitative capacity to pass itself off as real life, even though it's comprised of so, so many individual frames, and it's so highly carefully edited, um, we, we, we come to film conditioned not to notice. Um, we can, when we read, we tend to go back. We sometimes lose our focus, so we read. And so you almost have to develop a practice of doing this. And you're not going to do it on your own. And so you come together in a group. And then it becomes like Torah study. Yeah. Right? It's a, the, the context is all when it comes to something like this. Okay, we should know, I should mention that the, the playwright, uh, this screenwriter is a man named David Seidler, a Jewish person who actually born in England and then immigrated to the United States who suffered with, from a speech impediment his entire life. His uncle um, actually was treated by Lionel Logue. And so he came, he came with a, a, a very specific um, investment in this story. He grew up with his parents having encouraged him, told him the story of George VI and encouraged him that you know, see, we have a king who had gone through this experience and had come out on the other end. Yes? I thought it was interesting that Jeff Jacobi, who was an I-40 writer the whole time, too, he was the archbishop. Mm, wonderful. So what do we just hear? Why is that significant? Okay, so Okay, so that a horse, even a horse speaks more fluently than the the Duke of York, which even if we want um, to associate further to maybe a biblical text, we'll think about Yes, Balaam and the, the talking donkey, right? So so this, this idea that even the talking horse can do better than the Duke of York. Okay, so what is he stuck on? King. 
he's stuck on a hard consonant, but it just happens to be symbolically that he's stuck on the word king, which the two words that he's going to be most stuck on, <laughs> we'll see, it's, it's carefully chosen. I'm not saying that this is scientifically the case, that people with a stuttering disorder are going to necessarily be stymied by a K or an F, but the two words that he struggles most with are king and father. Um, in, what is his role in relation to his father and his father's expectations? What are his role in relation to this royal succession? And of course, this will also allow us to later get into questions of, of the king, the ultimate king, and the ultimate father. These are metaphors that we use when we talk about God, right? So speaking with that kind of authority, that kind of transcendent authority, what, what weighs on a person? Yes? Since we talked about the microphone to begin with, if we look at this microphone, it sort of looks like a web. Nice. So this is a web that's, that he's kind of gotten caught in. It feels a little bit more benign, but situated as it is with all these people around him, and, and, and the echo of the, of the amplification here is interesting too, because each time he speaks, there is a kind of echoing stutter, which, so an echo connotes a voice that is having a very broad reach. You know, something reverberates, it means that can have influence, it can have, it can have a sweep. But um, when, when your stutter echoes, it's a, it's a non-productive non repetition. So we'll be asking ourselves, what kinds of repetitions are productive? What kinds of repetitions make meaning? And what kind of repetitions are um, something that stymie you and prevent you from getting to the next thing? And in, in literary structures, repetitions are, are um, part of the ways in which we, we make meaning. We see a word that is repeated, or we see a structure that is repeated, and we, we see that the art has a, a kind of integrity and a form. So in this film, for example, we start with, a, with the Duke's speech, and then we have failed speeches, <laughs> efforts that he makes to make speeches that are failed. Often a plot structure works this way. Somebody wants something and a series of obstacles are placed before the person to get what they want. Obstacle one, number one, obstacle number two, obstacle number three, maybe four, and then finally, Baruch Hashem, you get what, you, what you're looking for. And you'll maybe return to the initial thing that you were, that of your quest and you'll cap it by, by showing that this time around you can do it. So that's exactly what happens. These kinds of repetitions over and over, the quest to speak, the quest to speak, the failure to speak, the quest to speak, this failure to speak, until in the end, how does the film triumph? In the end, with a fluent, effective speech at a time of war and need that will serve as a unifying moment for the people as they set out to war. At this point, the repetition is stalled. It's like, it's like a car you know, making the same noise, but never turning over, never advancing. Right? He's just not getting it. Okay, so, and that's the end of that scene. The next thing, um, what do we see? This, this takes place in 1925. The next scene takes place in 1934. And it's in one of the royal palaces, and you have this awful, pompous speech therapist who's trying to get <coughs> the duke to stick marbles in his mouth, a la 
the ancient method of Demosthenes. Um, and so he's full of protocol and etiquette and that like high British accent and he had such a slavish adherent to tradition that he's trying to use such a worn classical method. And so, so um, Elizabeth, his wife, who is really the barometer of right thinking in the film. And it's one of the indications that this film has a slightly liberal egalitarian streak, even for all its royal pretense. Right? How do we see that this film has a egalitarian streak or an undercurrent? Because Elizabeth is the one who finds the therapist, who says, has it helped? So has this method helped ever since Demosthenes? Something like that. Right? So she's, uh, she's questioning. And um, so the role that, the, that, that Elizabeth, who will later become the queen mother, right, she plays. And then what is the other indication that there is this? The queen mother's name, wasn't she Elizabeth? No, no she was Mary? Oh, she's Elizabeth. I thought she was Elizabeth too. Sorry, thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate that. Mary, okay. So, so, so the queen mother, the wife of, um, who will be George VI, um, plays this important role. And also, what's the other? Well, I'm, the, the kind of centerpiece departure from protocol. Okay, so you have this ter this disruption of the lineage, but yeah. So she has to go to this dark, shady. That's the other. So she goes, and the therapist himself, in being an Aussie, in being someone that we later find out is not credentialed in the way that the royal family would want him to be, that he insists that the treatment take place on his turf, in his rules, that they use first names. In other words, that there's a leveling of distinctions. In, in that office, there is no royal and there's subject, right? So that, that there's something, that freeing up, that whole egalitarian mindset is what undergirds the therapy, to loosening up of all of the, the impediments. Okay, so the other thing is, as opposed to the cold firm of the royal family and the, the really ugly relations that you see between the, 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 the parents and the children, that, that scene where David is, tries to cry on his mother's shoulder. I mean, he's a, he's a sordid figure anyway, but when he, when he breaks down on his mother's, Claire Bloom's shoulder when the father dies and she, she doesn't even know how to interact, as opposed to, the, to Lionel Logue's family where they play at reciting Shakespeare and they have they have a relationship. I mean, so you have a sense of family. Yeah. I just want to say something. Before I became a counselor, I was a speech pathologist, and stuttering is one of the most difficult things to cure. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And there are those who will say in the speech pathology profession that some of the interpretations of how one cures uh, a stutter that are presented in this film are very outdated in the sense that, that one, um, the, the primary cure 
way of curing is through researching some sort of primal trauma. This is not so much where people's thinking are nowadays, but this was what the thinking was then. And of course, at this point when you have so much, you know, let's say that it's primarily a physical problem and about, about getting the air in and, and it, you're still dealing with so many levels of tension that are overlaid after, after all that disappointment. Okay, so here is my question. Um, and, and this is a way for us to be able to, as we analyze the film, start thinking and anticipating the questions that we want to ask about the Moses story. Um, when you see this picture of the Duke of York and what he goes through, what does it do in terms of making an argument for you uh, about his fitness to rule or not to rule? Um, to what extent does, is it something that you like about him that he stutters? I think the film is making an argument on many levels that he is more fit, ultimately, to rule than his brother David. Okay, now, here we haven't met David yet. We know that David's given a speech, and he's now, number two, giving the speech. We, the next clip that we're going to look at actually speaks to David's unfitness to rule. But what is it here about his experience, what he is going through, that recommends itself? Even though it's the last thing in the universe that he wants to do. It's interesting. I am. Uh, there is a speech therapist, a renowned speech therapist, that is a member of our synagogue, a man named um, Phil Schneider, who's done documentary films about stuttering, and he talks about how it is. It's a remarkable thing that many stutterers actually go out, set out in their lives, to to assume professions and responsibilities that require them to speak in public. They actually want to get into that position where they can do it and they expose themselves to the rigors of having to do it on the highest level. So on some level, he stands for the principle of leadership that comes not from having, from like plenitude and ease, because the, that's what ro royalty is. It's plenitude and ease. That's also a disruption of tradition, right? You don't, you, the divine right of kings, it just comes to you, it descends from heaven. No, he, this is something that he has to earn and that he has to labor over and every word matters. And we see that he suffers and so someone who suffers is gonna care about my suffering. Okay, now we're, the, so we, this is what recommends him as a leader. Now we're gonna see what David's like by contrast. It's gonna take me a little bit to, so the father has died we already know that David has taken up with Wallace. He somehow is wanting to do everything. In other words, you know, shall I say, be in the White House and also have your businesses. <laughs> and now um, the Duke and his wife have been invited to a party at the palace by the king. They've been greeted by Wallace. And now um, Bertie, in other words, the Duke, is going to catch up with his brother in the wine cellar. David, I've been trying to see you. I've been terribly busy. Doing what? Kinging. Really? <laughs> Kinging. It's a precarious business these days. 
Okay, so what does not recommend David? <laughs> okay, insensitivity, nasty, you know. Bull Let Herr Hitler, so, right? Willingness to, to fret over where is the bloody 23, you know, the roaring, the roaring 20s music in the background, right? Completely dissipated existence. Lightheaded, lightheaded. Everything's light and easy and breezy. And as soon as he's being called to task for not discharging his duties, he goes on the offensive. That's another thing we're seeing lately. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. We would find ourselves siding with romance and love. The amazing thing about this story is it goes absolutely against the grain of Western literature and everything we're trained to care about. As, um, as Americans, we care about freedom, choosing your own spouse, not being limited by blood, certainly not being limited by like a slavish adhe um, adherence to protocol. You know, that kind of... Um, that kind of traditionalism really rubs us the wrong way, and yet this film is framed such to make us think about these things entirely differently, right? So the, the one who is pursuing easy breezy love, like a romp in, in, in the grass with Wallace, is seen as light, as a, as a lightweight, not taking seriously that responsibility that has been given to him as a gift by circumstances and by God, and not seeing that, that it comes with a certain, that's a privilege, and with it come responsibilities. Right? And so we find ourselves rooting entirely differently in this film for, for a very, very different kind of, in many respects, religious hero. 
someone who um, speaks for something that's larger than himself, that is required uh, uh, to, to discharge a duty, even though it's the last thing in the world that he wants to do or he thinks that he ought to do based on his station. He doesn't come thinking that he's God's gift to leadership and rulership, that, that this is owing to me. In fact, he's fleeing from it. Does that sound at all familiar to you? When, and here I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about what the Bible tells us about, about many of our prophets, Moses first and foremost, but all of the prophets are reluctant leaders. Right? Now, some of them really flee the coop, like Jonah. Right? That's the extreme, almost parodic version of it. But all of the prophets, on some level, they come to their leadership with a sense of humility. Right? We know that, you, that people to lead, there has to be some ego, but if there's too much ego, <laughs> then it's all about you. And that, it's all about David. Okay? Now, David is polished, and we, we find out that he's good with women. He probably has an easy way with people. He certainly has an easy way with speaking. And we tend to, when we're living in a superficial world of leadership identification, we go, oh, yeah, that's a leadership type. Right? And we may not. Now, how does someone like Bertie recommend himself to leadership when speaking comes so hard to him? And he's not as suave. And he, he would like to just do his, his work as a naval officer. What about that actually trumps um, ease and fluency? Um, I'm, I'm all for articulateness and eloquence. I don't think that we have to be suspicious of that. And yet, um, if, it, if it's so easy and breezy and your words come to you so unthinkingly, then words which at the end of the day are this sacred implement given to us, they're not, they, they, they do not come with any gravity. Okay? In, in Hebrew, the, the word honor shares a root with the word heavy. So kavod has the same root as kaved, which means heavy. That we'll see in our analysis of the verses pertaining to Moses, that means something. Gravitas. Gravitas is something that we, we talk about a leader having gravitas. Yes? Inspiration as well. I mean, if you're just chatting about the roots of 23, you know, whatever wine you're looking for, of course, you know, doesn't mean anything. A higher mission. Something that lifts you above your own selfish interests. Yes? Yeah, I, I wondered in the movie whether he wrote those speeches and it, does, it could have been the same speech written for David. He did not write these speeches. In fact, we see before the scene where he gives that final speech, it's delivered to him. And yet, just the very task of getting those words, I mean, we see the same pattern in the Bible, at least the way it's, tr the way it's reported to us that God speaks to. That the word, now, we as liberals might have a different interpretation of what that might actually <laughs> be, but the idea is you are not necessarily only speaking your own words for your own selfish motives, but that your words are carrying a larger national divine message, right? So he, these words are given to him, and yet he, his mouth is closed. His tongue is not facile. It's all tied and heavy. And so just being able to open it up is this amazing achievement, being able to convincingly embody the voice. Well, the, it, it, yeah. So we're three boys. 
Yeah, and the, the, young, the terrible story of the, of the epilepsy. Okay, well, so here I just want to add another piece. What is the danger that is presented in this film in overly fluent speech? Hmm? Flippancy? Okay, now, the, the film makes actually clear what in, um, fluent um, oratorial or uh, acumen or fluency without ethics can result in, a, in exactly what we're going to see in a minute in, 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 in World War. So I'm just going to the last clip that we're going to look at. So this is after the coronation. The archbishop has shown them a newsreel. They're in the palace and they're watching the newsreel from the coronation. And they're kind of razzing him a little bit that he lost the string. So he didn't know which way he should put the crown on the king's head. And then there's something else comes afterwards. So they're going very good because this is the first time there's ever been a newsreel at a coronation. So this is a very big, in addition to the radio, they've got this technological breakthrough of, of this having been televised or filmed. Okay, so this is what's at stake here, right? So um, yoke together uh, talent, fluency, together with incredible hatred, maniacal ambition, a complete lack of ethics, and what you have is Adolf Hitler. And his voice has to be the voice that's standing against this. And the, the incredible ceremony, the pomp surrounding this, this Nuremberg event, um, it, which has its own religious, is religious taint. Well, I mean, you know, it has the force of, of, of highest values, right? This is what, this is the new kind of civil religion that everyone's committing themselves to. Um, values that would pretend to be ultimate. This is what Bertie has to stand against. Okay, now let's move from this to our discussion of um, how this all relates to Jewish tradition and um, Moses. I want to focus now on the text so that we can, we'll see some incredible striking parallels between what's presented here in terms of the story of this duke who is second in line, not, not born to, you know, according to the succession, um, if, if you're looking at, at a system of primogeniture, who should have been the leader in Moses' family? Aaron. What else do we know about Aaron? He speaks well. Right? So if that's the case, if he's the older one and he speaks well, reason would dictate he should have been the one to do this. It just would have been simpler. 
right? Later when we see that, because he is so of the people, having grown up with, with them, as opposed to Moses who had been somewhat distanced, had that experience of being an outsider. Yeah. That's not all, all that is not uh, or traditional in the biblical text. It is not the first. It's the second that becomes the leader. That's Jacob. Can Jacob. you speak up so we can hear you at this point? I have never had anybody say I didn't have a big mouth. Sorry. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> <laughs> so kind. Um, that um, being the first and therefore the firstborn being the leader is not in biblical text. So it is and isn't because in inheritance law, over and over again, it's made clear that the firstborn is the one that inherits. All these narratives that have the upstart younger son inherit are in a sense the departure. The, the exception that, it, that in many respects proves the rule for everybody else. They all have a big number two, but there's a big struggle in each case for them to achieve that. Now, none of them are singled out for having a speech defect, but they're singled out, they're singled out for having a birth order defect. In, in, in Jacob's case, it's a foot and mouth disease, shall we say, like being the, the heel, being a big heel. <laughs> um, Moses is specifically singled out or singles himself out when God approaches him at the burning bush and says, come on, dude, time to, time to step up. Moses brings up the speech issues. So here I'm asking you to look at Exodus 4.10. And Moses said to the Eternal, O Lord, I am not a man of words, neither yesterday nor the day before, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. In Hebrew, he says, Lo ish dvarim anochi. I am not a man of dvarim, which is so interesting and ironic because, of course, the fifth book of the Bible is called Dvarim. So obviously, he starts off as a Lo ish dvarim, and then he becomes stupendously a man of, of dvarim, but he has to get there. So now note all the repetitions. You know, the, the, this plea, please don't take me, has its own kind of stuttering aspect. Where do we see a kind of stuttered aspect? And here it helps if you can look at the Hebrew rather than the translation. Lo istvarok and varimanoki gam mitmol gam mishilshom gam meaz dabracha elavdacha gam gam gam. Very interestingly and curiously, in rabbinic Hebrew, the the verb that is that evolves to describe stuttering is ligamgem, which is an onomatopoeia, right? that imitates a stutter, but it, I, I would conjecture that it actually derives from this. And in fact, there's a commentary by the Rashbam, Rabbi Sh um, Shlomo of Troyes, who was the grandson of Rashi, that specifically tries to argue that, God forbid, you shouldn't think that Moses was a gamgiman. He has a lot of difficulty imagining that this verse means that he actually had a speech impediment, because how could it be then a man who spoke God's word, the greatest prophet, should have a speech defect. He can't accept that idea. Now, what would lead someone to think, contrary to what the textual evidence seems to be, make a point of suggesting that Moses didn't have a speech impediment? What would be at stake in him wanting to insist that? Or what vision of leadership is being represented, or vision of Moses is being represented in that interpretation? <coughs> 
perfection. Right? There are those in our tradition, our interpreters, who want to insist that our leaders, um, our forebears, were perfect. They want to imagine them as higher than any of us. Now, Rashi, who came before the Rashbam, actually insists that he was, that he did have a speech impediment. Um, and the, the interpretations that our sages bring, they run the gamut. There are those who want a combination thereof because they see that there are all kinds of repetitions here, referring to him not being a man of words, and then saying, I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. And all of that repetition of itself, they want to cull a new meaning from each part. So they'll say he might have had a speech defect, but also he didn't speak Egyptian, or at least he had forgotten his Egyptian, because after all, he was in Median for all those years. So how is he supposed to go to Pharaoh to speak in Egyptian because he's so distanced from that culture, and he doesn't speak Hebrew anymore because he's been far away from, you know, as since he was a child. So he has a language difficulty, not necessarily a speech difficulty, but a language difficulty. Those who err on the side or who want to tilt in the side of insisting that it was cultural or linguistic, it's because they don't like the idea that Moses might have had some congenital defect because that diminishes for them the quality of leadership. It makes him disabled, and that's something that they can't imagine being embodied in that highest leader. Now, where, do we, where else do we see an example of trying to... Of trying to maneuver between these poles. On the one hand, acknowledge that he must have had some difficulty with speech, but not have it be congenital, not have him be defective by birth. So I'm sure some of you are familiar with the, the famous story in source number four from Exodus Rabbah that tries to explain the ideology of Moses' speech impediment. What is that story? Right, so Moses was this preternaturally precocious and beautiful child in Pharaoh's court that everyone loved. Pharaoh would let Moses jump on him and take his crown and mess around. He was the apple of everyone's eye. And the, the magicians and the advisors were all very threatened. They thought, well, maybe this, this baby is exactly that baby, that child that has been prophesied who will challenge the Pharaoh. And it seems by his ease and his comfort in taking the crown away that he, he is going to pretend to that sort of power. Now, miraculously, the, the rabbis try to collapse time and space, and they put Jethro into that story because Jethro, you know, isn't there. Jethro's in Midian. But they imagined somehow that Jethro was in the court, and when the magicians had suggested that perhaps this baby be put to death because they're this baby could be the seed of Pharaoh's destruction, he says, ah, oh, the baby doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just a baby. But uh, here's an idea. Give him a test. Put in front of him a, a plate of coal, of hot coals, and a plate of gold. If the baby goes for the gold, well, then the baby has sense. That's toddler has sense. And you know, you, be, you better be wary of him. If he goes to the coal, then, you know, he's, he's kind of a stupid baby. <laughs> and you don't have to be worried about him. And so, but of course, the baby Moses is precocious and brilliant and is not going to go to the coals. And just at that moment when he's about, about to reach for the gold, the angel Gabriel intercedes, because heaven and earth have to collapse, <laughs> have to come together for this, and pushes Moses' hand to the coals. Moses puts the coal to his mouth and from thence, <laughs> the speech impediment. So we have a speech impediment that is divinely ordained, but it wasn't born with. Marnie, you want to say something? Sorry, if I can just go back to the echo chest. Yeah. Uh, since you pointed that out, 
actually quite poetic. Right? Don me small, don don me so small. He's not just saying, hey man, you know, I'm not your guy. He's actually speaking in poetry. So in context of your lesson, I think it's like maybe separating the delivery from the message. Right? The form of delivery can be hard to get to, but wait, stop and listen to this beautiful message. Well, and he does have a, like a, an, an image orientate, I'm saying imagistic orientation. Later, he'll, he'll have to say the same, he'll make the same plea that he's not a speaker by using the phrase, arel um, sfataim, I'm uncircumcised of mouth. He keeps on going at this whole question. Of, and so here, that raises another interesting question. What does it mean to be uncircumcised of mouth? In Hebrew, what is a circumcision? Okay, Brit is covenant, but what is the actual, Brit could be any number of covens. Brit milah, milah. What does milah mean in Hebrew? Word. So there is something about Moses' words at this point that are yet uncircumcised, unopened. There's something uninterpretable, sealed, that needs to be covenanted. Um, it, it, and perhaps through a process of interpretation, a process of maturation, an unsealing of words that has not happened yet. Um, so, like a toddler. A toddler. Oh, no, what he's saying, he's a, he's a grown-up in Midian. He's already, he's going to then marry, yeah. This is after he's killed the Egyptian, he's fled, yes. So it was interesting, that particular um, invocation of Moses is, Va'ish Moshe Anav Mikol Adam, what you're referring to from Numbers 12, is probably the least humble story about Moses, right? That's the story of Miriam and, uh, and, and Aaron speaking as their brother, and, and it's in a sense a hunkering down um, on, on Moses' singular power as opposed to his siblings. Moses makes a better case for his humility here in Exodus than he does later in the book of Numbers, I would argue. I, I hope you're following what I'm trying to say. It's always funny to have a text say, and he's the most humble guy on earth. That seems an egotistical thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we have him continue. So this is Exodus 4, and then in Exodus 6, he's still saying, I'm Arel Svataim. Okay, so we, and we have him saying, I can't speak, and God says, Aaron will speak for you. So the, the implication is that throughout um, the Exodus struggle with Pharaoh, Moses is coming into voice. And actually, what is a breakthrough moment for Moses? one can argue. Here I'll, I'll, t I'll have you go back to the film for a second and the film will give you a key into what I think is one of the breakthrough moments for Moses. When uh, Bertie, when the Duke comes to Lionel Logue and um, he is resistant to therapy, the first way that Logue tries to make an argument to him that he can do it, I can cure you, is by having him do what? What's that 
tricking, okay, so he has, um, he hasn't put on headphones and listened to music and recite the to be or not to be soliloquy, which of course is an existential moment. Will I be or will I not be? Um, and the implication there is that in song, stutterers don't stutter when they sing. They, um, anger is one way to open up the pathways. We know that Moses is spectacularly angry, loses his temper a lot and hits things instead of speaking. But angry, anger releases. But we know that he, be, he first becomes spectacularly eloquent under what circumstances? What's the first extended glorious utterance that we have from Moses? We have him with Aaron issue various requests to Pharaoh. But after that, when does he speak at length? And certainly with no impediment. No, or before that, Exodus 15, as Yashir Moshe Uvne Israel, song at the sea. When he sings. So, in the same way. But it says, as Yashir Moshe, Moshe sing. So, singing is something that opens up Moses' pathways. In the same way that it's music opens up the, the Duke's path, okay? So we see him coming into this fluency, but it's a process. So his voice is liberated. His words are liberated as the people are liberated. And, the, and it's a struggle. The idea is that the words don't come easy. The words have to be given by God, and they're invested with a certain weight. Now, one of the things that I invite you to do, you can do this in Torah study. When I'm not here, you'll have a lot more time. Um, I invite you to look in those Exodus chapters for the repetitions of the root kaf bet dalid, kaved, that root in those chapters. And you'll see that much of the dy dynamic in those chapters is a war of, of, of verbs between Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and, and there it's achbid, um, like I will make Pharaoh's heart heavy, and God saying, watch what I'm going to do, ikabda, and I will be made heavy. So there is a war going on between Pharaoh who would be God, the Pharaoh who pretends to be God, and wield that word and the weight of that authority, and God who through a series of miracles and through the agency of Moses' voice is going to be revealed as the true honored voice. Okay, and so Moses' heaviness of speech is, the fact that he is heavy of speech signals to us that speech in, if it's going to serve this role of speaking the word of God, it has to have this gravitas. It has to have this weight. It can't be this light thing where some man lifts himself up and pretends to be God in lieu of God. Okay, so we'll add another piece to this. And this is one of the most astonishing teachings that I've ever been exposed to about Moses. I love to claim credit for it myself. It's not me. And they say, the rabbis say that if you cite an idea in someone else's name, then you bring redemption to the world. So here I go. I'm redeeming the world through a man named Mark Schell, who is a professor of comparative literature at Harvard who himself as a child was a stutterer and now speaks about 10 different languages and just is a breathtakingly gifted and knowledgeable scholar. Uh, this is on page five. 
um, in his book called Stutter from 2006. Mark Shell notes that it, Moses is not the only being to hesitate at the burning bush. God does too. Is that why he seeks out a stutterer? Like a teacher reading out the role, Moses demands that God speak out the effable, ineffable name. Moses wants to know, who are you? What's your name, right? To God. So what is God's name? What is, but, so what is the God's name? What is the name that God gives? Skip a few lines down. But God says in the Hebrew of Exodus 3, 4, Eheyeh asher eheyeh. I am that I am. In other words, when you, see, when you hear eheyeh asher eheyeh, which we often interpret as God um, presenting God's self in this eternal, God is eternal becoming, right? Rather than being a static, inert statue, like the big, huge things that you see in ancient Egypt. Or being a death principle, like the cult of ancient Egypt, which was all about death. God was endless becoming. But the way that's presented is it's, it's as a stutter. God is ehyeh asher ehyeh. And so Moses, as stutterer, is speaking for God as stutterer. Now, what does it mean to say that God is a stutterer? Am I, am I saying that God has a speech impediment? What, what, what does it mean to say that God is a stutterer? I, I mean, I can answer that question, but I'm actually asking you to... He's finding his voice and his relationship with us. Okay, it's right here, that God is his purpose. Well... Replication? Okay. So, God is imperfect... In, in certainly insofar as God is so totally apart from human beings in a certain theological presentation, how can one even speak about speaking God's word? Like how can one ever but bridge that chasm between what it is to speak in the language of human beings? The Torah, we often say, the Torah speaks in the language of human beings. If so, how can the, tor the Torah speak in the language of God? So the stutter, the, stat, the, 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 the fact that there is this gap or this impediment or this block, even in God's language, is, is reminding us that it's always an approximation. We're trying to get at something that, uh, you know, bridge a gap that can never be bridged. So Moses at once is both close to God, closer than anyone else, in seeming to have this manner of speech, but, but also allied with us, and therefore forever at a remove. And so Moses, in being a stutterer, in that, in having those kinds of repetitions that are both stymied, but also, I'd like to suggest, occasions for interpretation, Moses is presented as an apt vehicle for God's word. Now let me, let me um, explain what I mean by here. And I, I, I'm trying to build up like kind of a few layers of significance here. When we think about what the Torah aims to be, um, not a work of literature, or even a certain kind of escapist film that just washes over us, and we're done with it. We go in there, it does its job, we are diverted, we get the plot, and we move on. That is not what the Torah is meant to be. Not, it's not what any good work of literature is meant to be. It's meant a good work of literature is something that you return to. An, a good work of literature that has ultimate, ultimate significance is something you return to, and you believe that you're going to find something new. In, at every turn. Now, how could that, how could you possibly find something new? We read this book over and over again. How do we find something new? Mm -hmm. um, see, God is, is 
Okay, wonderful. Now, if we think of this in textual terms, what allows a text to be in that state of ever becoming is specifically gaps or missing elements, things that riddle us, that confuse us, all the, 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 those moments where the commentators have a difficulty and have to pause, just in the same way that we had to pause and note, and note the way things were made up. Um, I often say to my students that uh, difficulties are the greatest occasion for learning. If you totally understand something, you're just going to whip through it. So um, pauses, gaps, hiatuses, repetitions that we don't seem to understand, things that seem to be superfluous, contradictions, all of these are occasions in rabbinic interpretation for learning. You could argue that all of them are the stutters in the text. Every moment where a root repeats seemingly superfluously, or where you've got an extra element, or s some contradiction, or the fact that there are two creation stories, right? All of these seeming repetitions that would halt the fluidity of the text, they are the occasions for extra interpretations. That's what keeps the text going for ourselves. I would add one more layer. Where does all of them, where does the people come into being after? the liberation from Egypt. Where does the people come into being? Why, we don't go straight to Israel, right? Where do we go? In the desert. What is the Hebrew word for desert? Midbar. What is the root of Midbar? No, not mem. Dalid, bet, resh. The same as dvarim, right? What is a desert? It's this endlessly repetitious <laughs> landscape that has an occasional different feature, an occasional oasis, and yet why is it the deserts are always these places where, where reputedly prophets have revelations? Yeah. Right? Landscapes with huge repetitious elements that are, that are open, you know, perhaps blank slates that can be written with meaning. Um, it's interesting that, that it turns out to be that, that Hebrew word shares the root of the, of the word word. Right, so what we, what we find here is the possibility that the stuttering, which is an impediment, something that would make you want to flee from the leadership, that adds a heaviness and a block, looked in another way, reinterpreted, adds that gravitas, and that um, significance of meaning that comes from repetition, not so much as a block, but repetition as a, a structuring principle, repetition as an interpretive detail, right? And that is why, for this, for this and many other reasons, for the reasons that humility comes from having had negative experiences, or that um, when things don't come easy for you, you appreciate, and therefore you can understand what it means to serve others. Um, in addition, if your job is not just to be a social servant, but also just to, to be the bearer of God's word, to understand what, what heaviness and depth and meaning words can have, 
and that words are, are, are not to be taken lightly, but that they can actually be this, this means of, of furnishing ongoing meaning for all of us, you know, for so, so many generations. Um, I'll read one more um, extract for you. This comes from Martin Buber. And then uh, I guess I'll, I'll stop for questions. So Martin Buber is, is one, I'm sure you're familiar with him as a, as a theologian or as a philosopher, but one of Martin Buber's major contributions to modern Jewish life is in, in this area of teaching us to read sensitively, to read the Bible with a kind of literary mindset. And so he was the one who came up with this term Leitfert, um, L-E-I-T-W-O-R-T, a, a, a guiding word, a motif word, that so he trained uh, what will later become literary uh, readers of the Bible to, to look for these patterns of repeating words. So when I read for the patterns of Kaved, I'm in a sense being a student of Martin Buber. So this is what Buber wrote a book called Moses, the Revelation of the Covenant and the Covenant in 1946. So he was writing a history of Moses and Egypt um, against the backdrop of Hitler's tyranny, a German Jew, aware of what it meant to be looking at that um, Exodus story it, with a contemporary lens. And he was not viewing it just in the abstract as a, as a historical uh, you know, artifact, but he was trying to learn lessons that actually would shed some light on his own experience. He said, sent as a bearer of the word, intermediator between heaven and earth through the word, Moses possesses no mastery over freely coursing speech. He has been created thus and chosen thus. By this, a barrier is raised between him and the human world. He who has, has to establish the covenant between the people and the, the eternal is, so to speak, not accepted fully into the covenant of his tribe. Teacher, prophet, lawgiver, yet in the sphere of the word, he remains insurmountably lonely, alone in the last resort with the word of heaven, which forces itself through inflexible soul and into inflexible throat. Consequently, when the God who himself speaks his word into him uses him as a mouth, it is a stammering mouth. And in this way, the tragedy of Moses becomes the tragedy inherent in Revelation. It is laid upon the stammering to bring the voice of heaven to the earth. Now, Buber presents this as a tragedy. I think um, the film paired with Buber presents this not only as a tragedy, but also as a story of redemption, that it is specifically and amazingly a stammerer, someone who is not endowed with a lightness of word, but with a heaviest, uh, heaviness of word that can achieve this and can overcome this. So may we all use our words with intention and with gravity and with hope that they can be effective and they can be effective instruments against tyranny. Can you hear us on? I don't know if uh, you have questions that you'd like to uh, add to this or if you all want to just go home and have a nice Martin Luther King Day. Yes. So I go through this first experience of deciding, is this something that's going to be worth my time, right? So if it's something that I come out of pumped and excited that I want to learn more about it, 
Then I go back and I watch it again. So last night I saw Fences. Have any of you seen Fences? Now, I mean, it's not a surprise to me that I, that, 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 that movie would do that to me because it's written by a, a master play, a playwright. So of course the, but I, I came back so pumped from seeing Fences, even though it's a terribly sad film. Um, I, and I, it was a problem because I need to get up very early for my flight to come here and I, I couldn't quite go to sleep. So when I find myself getting very excited about something that I see, then I go and I watch it and I take the time with it and I use it as a challenge and I study it with students and they teach me more and then I end up knowing more. Yes. Oh, that's a terrible thought. But I mean, really, you couldn't raise the stakes any higher than they, than they were raised in this case. I mean, I think that our problem right now is that we, are, we, we thought that we were past, you know, that we learned the lessons of these sorts of experiences. I don't know why I, I, don't know why I would think that, because there have been terrible things that human beings have done to one another since, since World War II. But we somehow, I somehow thought that um, we'd graduated to a different stage. So we have to learn by, you know, from history, right? We're trying to figure out how to make sense of our present in light of our past. And maybe we can do. We have to be on the alert, but we also don't want to make facile, silly analogies that will then make us look s stupid. Yes? Yeah, it's just uh, on this point, the Stockdale Community College, uh, this is the sixth year of the genocide conference mm -hmm. that Well, so good luck to us on that. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> I, I hope you have something that you watch before you go to sleep that gives you better. to disseminate words, and they no longer edited in the blogosphere, in the Twitter sphere. And, and, and certainly, we've become more of a prose world. Right? Used to, we used to be, there, there, you can map this out, when cultures are poetic and when they're prosaic. And we are, I don't, can't even say they were in a prosaic phase, because that would be like, people would be reading novels. Um, but we've been, and I might be colluding in this, in that I'm using film as a medium, in a sense I'm acquiescing to our image-laden culture. But I think that any, anything that we produce artistically, if we take it seriously, it, it fills up our spirit, you know, and, and it redounds to our spiritual benefit. We're just in a very, um, we've become so lowest common denominator as a culture that it, you know, what we think about Twitter and, and reducing 
reducing cardinal principles, <coughs> what you want to be ma basic principles to you know 120 characters. Now, being being terse, being economical in, in, in your language can also be a virtue, but we're not being economical in a studied way. We're just being strategic. We're being political. We're being pragmatic. We're saying what we think will be effective. It doesn't matter if it's true. And that's very dangerous. I think it's going to be a task. Um, ethically oriented spiritual communities are going to have to invest thought and time in good old-fashioned things like talking about Lishon Hara. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can never have too much good speech and too little evil speech. But I don't know that we can, we tend to think that that's talking about something is what the ultra-Orthodox do in this knee-jerk way. But really, like, what does it mean to speak, to dare to open your mouth in this world? What if we were scared to open our mouths? Like, if we, if we felt that we'd be humiliated each time we opened our mouths, we'd be really careful what we said. Just the, the ethic of speech on the most basic level. Forget the way in which speech can be used to harm, harm others. I mean, that's the next. Anyway, guys, let's pray. Let's pray for good things and dedicate ourselves on local levels to being, coming out and helping the vulnerable and the weak and the marginal and those who will be disenfranchised in the coming years. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. Who am I, Lord, that you should send me? How can I lead this people out of bondage? What words can I speak that they will heed? I will teach thee what thou wilt say.